Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to In Town Church. We're glad to have you in worship with us. We're wrapping up a series on work that we've been looking at a variety of passages where the Bible talks about work, about vocation, about calling. And this morning, we're wrapping up with our, this passage that was just read, Ephesians 4. And then we'll begin our season of Lent with an Ash Wednesday celebration. So I hope you can join us then. But let me pray for us as we uh, consider uh, work, as Paul talks about it in Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning with insight into this text, that you would excite us with the possibility of working with joy, working with vitality, working with meaning. Lord, would you cause us to delight not only in the work that we will do or the work that we want to do, but the work that we have now, no matter how meaningless and how uh, boring maybe it is now, I pray that you would help us to see how the gospel story gives light to even this type of work. Father, I pray that as we talk about work, that we would see more fully the work that Jesus has done on behalf of us, on behalf of this church, on behalf of the worldwide church, the work that he has done in dying on our behalf so that we may go out and die on behalf of the world with joy. Lord, help us to see Jesus as we continue to think about what this passage has for us. Let it not only be relevant to our story, to our life, to our work, but Lord, let it be relevant to our relationship with you and how we may more fully engage the life of the world on your behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, come to InTown regularly, you'll hear us talking a, a great deal about the story of the Bible, that all of the Bible is telling this one story, and each book, each letter, each parable tells a little bit of a different part of this story. And then if you go way back to the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1, the first few pages, that this story begins in a garden. It begins with a human couple a husband and a wife that are enjoying perfect communion with God and yet give up that perfect communion, give up that harmony with one another, that harmony with creation for another vision of life. And it is in this story, this, this human story in miniature, in this garden with this human couple, that we frame the story of Jesus, that we frame his coming to bring salvation, that the story starts with the problem. The story starts with the fall. The story starts with a broken relationship and a broken world that then Jesus comes to reestablish goodness and life and meaning and togetherness. And every worldview, every religion is seeking to answer, if they take human sin and human pain seriously, they're seeking to answer what went wrong and how do we put it back together again? Or how does anyone or someone, or God, put it back together again. And Christianity t answers this question by telling the story of humanity, humanity in miniature in this garden, in this first couple, that he lovingly created humanity and attached himself with humanity and to humanity, longing to live in a loving, vibrant, continual, unending relationship with humanity. But as I said, that this first couple decided that that wasn't enough. And they cordoned off parts of their lives and said, this is for me. This is 
my decision. This is my area, God, where you're not allowed. And so, yes, the churches tended to talk about this act as an act of disobedience. And yes, it was. But that doesn't get to the the fuller picture of what went wrong. Because this decision to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was disobedience, was sinful. But the root sin, you see, that was just a behavioral symptom. The root sin is that they no longer saw their whole lives and all of the created world as as a sacrament of communion with God. In other words, it's not that they preferred the world to God, but that they began to think of places where they could reserve for them, that they could reserve for themselves where God's presence wasn't essential and was even to be avoided. They began to think of God in other words in very religious terms, that they would meet with God in certain places rather than all places. And instead, then, of a husband and wife working to bring life in God to all of the world and filling it with meaning and beauty, they instead made the world material, distorting the godness of all of life. And so how does this, what does this have to do with work? Well, how does Jesus come to answer this problem, to solve this problem? How does he come to reconcile this distorted world? He takes on flesh. He comes in very ordinary means. He doesn't set up sacred geography. He doesn't set up a sacred temple. He doesn't set up elaborate rituals or pilgrimages. But he talks about farmers. He talks about shepherds. He talks about seeds and trees and bread and wine. Very ordinary, earthy, physical stuff that's now imbued with godness, with the presence of God. And this is the beauty and the uniqueness of Christianity because most of life is very ordinary. And it's in our ordinary life, not our exceptional life, where we are to to meet with and experience who God is. What does Paul say in verse 25? Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Paul is grounding these ethical commands. He's teaching us how to live because of this interconnectedness of life, the spirituality of all of life, that all of life is life in God. Wendell Berry writes about this kind of ordinary life, and after years of education, he moves back to Kentucky, and he begins to teach writing at the University of Kentucky, but he also buys the family farm. And over time, he settles into this rhythm of life that becomes his story, that becomes his writing, that becomes his life. He's a husband. He sees himself as a Kentuckian, as a very local person, as a farmer, as a writer, as a neighbor, as a friend. Very ordinary things that then become imbued with godness, with the life of God. Day after day after day of living in these very ordinary labels It is in those labels, it is in the ordinary, not the exceptional, that he becomes more acquainted with who God is. And his stories are about people a lot like him. This fictional town of Port William is made up of farmers and shopkeepers, of fathers and mothers, of sons and daughters, whose family stories have been intertwined over decades and maybe a hundred years. And how does he refer to the people that live in this town? He calls them a membership. One of the 
One of his characters says, the way we are, we are members of each other, all of us, everything. The difference ain't in who is a member and who is not, but in who knows it and who don't. Therefore, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for, because we are all members of one body. Speak truthfully instead of lying. Don't harbor anger. Don't steal from one another, but work for the good of your neighbor. Your work, see, is is therefore made sacred. It is teeming with godness. Even in the very ordinary work that we do, it is teeming with godness. It is not done in a vacuum, but is done in membership. And so therefore you work not simply to provide for your own necessities, but you work for one another. You work in order that you can share because you live in a society bounded by common needs by mutual service. And if you're a Christian at the center of this society, at the center of your story in this membership is a life-giving, self-sacrificial king. And so it changes the questions, or at least adds to the questions that we have to ask about our work, that we certainly can ask practical questions like, what does this job pay? Is it adequate for my needs? What are the possibilities of advancement in this particular role? Is it fulfilling? Is it meaningful work? Is it significant? But of course, without an outside story to frame those questions, we can hide a great deal of narcissism in those questions as we wait on satisfying, fulfilling, meaningful work, or we're envious of someone who works in an industry or in a way, in a place that we feel would be significant, and we become dependent then upon others as we think ourselves above certain forms of work. And this is like Cousin Eddie in Christmas Vacation, holding out for a job in middle management while he shacks up with the Chevy Chase's family because he can't afford Christmas. He's holding out for a management job. But we're not above certain forms of work. As members of Christ's body, All work, even the most banal and boring, can become part of God's ongoing care for his creation. It's a place. Your work is then a place of working out truthfulness, forgiveness, industriousness, generosity on behalf of others. And so certainly we can ask those those practical questions. But if work, like every other area of life, is an activity that's reflecting the values of this life-giving, self-sacrificial king, then we must also ask, what does God want me to do? How will this job benefit my neighbor? How will this job offer if I'm going to take it? Will it provide necessary and healthy goods and services? Does this job provide for the common good? Or if I'm in a job already, how could I transform the way that I go about working in this job in a way that provides for the common good? We have to ask also because work is not our only calling. Does this job allow me to give appropriate energies towards other parts of my calling as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a literal neighbor who inhabits a street, as a church member, etc.? These are the questions that become vital to ask if we believe that all of work 
is sacred, that all of life is sacred. All of life is, in a sense, a sacrament by which we receive the mercies of God and also distribute them outward. But as Americans, we are challenged. We're challenged by two forms of individualism that threaten to undermine these questions, that threaten the godness of all of life. In his landmark book, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella categorized modern American individualism in two forms. One was utilitarian and the other expressivist. Now, utilitarians turn to work in pursuit of, of personal success and achievement, often measured by financial compensation. They're incredibly driven. They're highly competitive. They're willing to sacrifice for their, their private lives for the sake of career advancement. And these people congregate in places like Manhattan and the Bay Area and Boston and L.A., but generally not in Portland, not generally. Who congregates in Portland? Well, it's generally the expressivist. Expressivists typically don't find meaning meaning in navigating the harsh realities of of the work world, but they seek meaning in, in their private lives, in personal relationships, in leisure activities, in lifestyle enclaves, and in their causes that they serve. They've decided to bow out of the rat race in, it, in its pursuit of more and more compensation for the sake of more humane and a more sensitive existence. And these people move to Portland, they move to Austin, they move to New Orleans, to Santa Fe. Now, in either of these two expressions of individualism, both the expressivist as well as the utilitarian, both, if they're framed correctly, if there's an undergirding of a different story, they can create and serve and beautify the world, but without an alternative story, without an alternative vision of work, they can both tend to turn in on themselves. They can begin to be service unto, unto, unto self, and neither then approaches work as a place that's teeming with godness. Neither approaches work with the primary intention of providing for their own basic needs, but primarily then to serve the interest of others, to serve God's world. For one, if they can't enjoy a certain standard of living, if they can't advance to the place that they think they ought to, if they can't get the recognition that they're seeking, all is lost. For the other, if work ties them down too much, if it doesn't allow them the self-expression that they're wanting, then all is lost. But what we want to talk about this morning, what, we, what Paul is talking about, is a gospel that frames our work differently, that gives us an alternative story to live by. And for those whose work is demanding and absorbing, and everyone in your field is a slave to the work, the, war, the gospel gives us and allows us a proper distance from that type of work. And for those whose primary aim is self-expression, is doing something meaningful, the gospel gives us an identity and a meaning that's apart from this and frees us from needing significant work as a way of building our self-worth and our self-esteem. We look at the other part of chapter 4 earlier this year, and in verse 20 says, This, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to put off your old way of working, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, to put on the new way of working, and to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We need this. Without this alternative story, without this alternative identity, this description of who we are, without the gospel that says that you have been made new, you have been made righteous by something that's outside of you, without it, we'll always look to our work for self-justification and we'll be forever oscillating between pride, I've made it, or despair, I'll never make it. And what Jesus says, first of all, In the gospel, there's a bit of bad news because we have to reconcile who we actually are and our own human finitude and our limitations. And what Jesus says to those who struggle with pride, I've made it. He says that it'll never be enough, that you'll never advance far enough to find the personal fulfillment that you're looking for. You'll never have that irrevocable standing before others that you so desperately want because there's someone always right behind you that is wanting to supplant you, or there's someone ahead of you that you want to supplant. You're always oscillating between this pride that I've made it or this despair I won't make it. And what Jesus says, first of all, is that you'll never make it far enough to satisfy your own heart, to satisfy even your own standards. That's the antidote to pride. But there's also an antidote to despair, which is the good news of the gospel. It says that no matter how you fail to live up even to your own standards, no matter how you blow it at work, no matter how insignificant your work seems to yourself and to those around you, you are never outside the scope of his approval, of his love, of his acceptance, and of his statement that you are significant because you are made in the image of God and because he loves you, not because of how wonderful of a worker you are. Hilary of Portier, back in the fourth century France, captured a concept in Latin, and it's irreligioso, irreligiosa, solicitude pro Deo. And what he's trying to capture in this is this anxiety that we have to do God's work for him. And what he is saying, if we apply it to work, is that underneath all of our workplace anxiety is really an anxiety over our inability to measure up, over our inability to work hard enough in order to gain the approval that we so desperately want from other people, to please everyone who's looking on, including ourselves. This workplace anxiety is only a behavior, a symptom of a deeper anxiety. And so we work anxiously every day or we anxiously avoid work because we're, we're fearful. We become frenetic and compulsive in our work. We become workaholics where we can never stop. And the only meaning and satisfaction that we can find in our lives is through our work. Or we become lethargic and neglectful of work. We're paralyzed by fear. The problem is that our society rewards one of these fears, rewards one of these anxieties and the goods that it produces. Our society admires relentless compulsive work habits, and it looks down on the other. But you see, they're really different sides of the same coin. They're connected to this inner anxiety that can never be solved on our own. 
then we can never get the position that makes us feel fully significant and satisfied and justified in the eyes of others and in our own eyes. But when the work of Jesus gets inside of us, when, when his full, eternal work, when his finished work gets inside our souls and into, in, into the DNA of how we think about work, we can begin to work not in an endless pursuit of personal fulfillment and standing, but for the life of the world, for others. And that's at the very tail end of our passage. And let's spend just a few moments talking about that, and then we'll conclude. Because Paul writes, why do you work? Why do you speak truthfully? Why, are you, why do you not steal from others? It's so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. And this is completely upside-down thinking because conventional wisdom tells us to work either to acquire status and standing and significance or to suffer through work in order to get to the weekend, to get the money to live the sort of lives that we want on vacation. And Paul is telling us is that the purpose of work is not to create meaning for ourselves or to fund our self-indulgence, but it's to benefit others, particularly those in need. Now, this word share, it doesn't imply that the only reason that we work is to provide for others because it means to give a part of. It means to share part of what we have with those who are in need. Paul is allowing here that we can work in order to provide for ourselves, for our necessities. We, we can work in order to pay our bills and to take care of our families, but that in no small way, as we think about our own compensation, as we think about taking one job rather than another job, as we think about negotiating for a cost-of-living adjustment or a raise, as we think about working longer hours to increase our compensation, as we do these things, what Paul is meaning here is that we have to envision how this new income, this new place of work will benefit those around us. And in order to do this, we need to know about our communities. We need to know about our families. We need to know about groups of people or individuals in our midst who are suffering, who are in need. We need to be familiar with the budget priorities of our church and the challenges. When we consider where to go to college, what to major in, it means having the faces of the poor and the disadvantaged in front of us. We don't go to study just to to learn a trade in order to make the most amount of money for us, but we consider, what could I learn in this context? And we, we continue asking that question. What could I learn in this context in order to serve humanity in the way that Jesus has served me? You see, it changes the questions. It adds to the questions. It frames the questions differently. We begin to have not just our bank account, not just our achievement in front of us, but we have the faces of those that we want to serve. We have the faces of those that Jesus has come to serve. And therefore, all of life becomes sacred. All of life becomes missional. All of life becomes a means by which you worship God and bring his presence to bear upon the life of the world. You see, then the goal is that the more that we learn about Jesus, the more that we find out about him, about his life and death and resurrection, the more that we get into our bones, into our DNA, that he looked upon us in our need and said, my life for yours, the more 
will be energized by the Spirit, by that truth, to reveal this love to others, to work with a bias towards those in need, a bias towards the lost and the least and the last, because those are the people that Jesus prioritized. In John 20, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says to them, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And that's really a commission for all of life, but particularly a commission as we think about our work. As Jesus, as the Father has sent Jesus, so he sends you and I into our workplaces with the very same intentions of service and self-sacrifice. You see, in this passage, in this little verse, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, receive then the Holy Spirit, we see the whole vista of what God did in Jesus through his healing and his suffering, through his parables, through his celebrations, through his preaching, and ultimately in his agony, that he's bringing salvation to bear upon the world. And he doesn't, God doesn't look down upon our wrecked world, our broken world, and say, look what you've done, deal with it yourselves. He doesn't look down upon us as individuals stuck in our sinful patterns, and he doesn't look at us with with anger and gritted teeth and say, well, maybe if you do enough, I'll lend you a helping hand. But he looks upon us with pity and with compassion and with sorrow, but yet with hope. And as Jesus was sent into the world, he sends you and I into the workplace in the very same way. And so the story of Jesus' ministry is not simply the story of what he did in history, but it encompasses the vocation that comes to us in the present, in the present, that we should be, by the power of the Spirit, the very presence of Jesus for the whole world. And this discovery brings remarkable joy and remarkable sorrow at times into our world, into our lives, into our workplaces, because our vocation is to take up the cross of Jesus, to be Jesus for the whole world. And how did he give himself to the whole world? It was with great sorrow and personal agony, but yet with great hopefulness and great joy in giving himself away. And this is your vocation. If you are in Christ, your vocation is to to take up the cross and be Jesus, be his hands and his feet, his aroma for the whole world, beginning with your workplace, beginning with your locality, your family, your relationships, living with the joy and the sorrow that's woven into the pattern of Jesus' work. That's what we bring to our work. Let's pray to that end. Jesus, we all work with great anxiety, some of it legitimate because we are working to bring forth things of beauty, things of delight, things of goodness that serve our fellow man, and we want them to be good. We want to bring them to fruition, and Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would encourage us, that you would give us the strength if we are barbers to be good barbers, if we're salespersons to be good at selling things, that we would be good at the things that you have called us to do, that we wouldn't look necessarily for the exceptional, for the extraordinary, but that we would be good citizens, good Christians in the ordinary, in the, the very basic things of life, that we would see them teeming 
with godness, with your presence. And Lord, let us live as people experiencing both the sorrow of our broken world and taking it on our shoulders, but also with the joy and the hope that comes in knowing that one day through us, you will remake it, that your son will return to remake the world and set it to rights. And we pray that we would work with great anticipation for that coming day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.